you scared <laughs> you scared us. You scared us. That was the point. But also, Blair Witch Project uh, made, was terrifying. You made me want to look behind me. <laughs> Hello, you're listening to Dear Reader, a book talk show featuring chatty librarians bringing you reading recommendations and a whole lot of book loving. I'm Justine Hanna, here with my fellow librarian and bibliophile Natalie Mason, and we're coming to you from Melbourne Library Service. Hi, Justine. Hi, Natalie. How are you doing today? I'm terrified. How are I you? am. I'm totally terrified. <laughs> today, we're talking about scary books in our Halloween spooktacular special. Ooh. You're a great ghost. Am I? Yeah. I awesome. Have learned that earlier. Mm-hmm. I wish it's a new career path. I think it might be. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we're very so we're very so pleased. We are so very pleased. We're very so and so very. This is how scary this episode is. Um, to introduce our special guest and library colleague, Alex. Welcome hey. to Dear Reader. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Hey Alex, we're so happy to have you. Are you scared? I'm. Terrified. Fantastic. <laughs> Good. That makes three of us. That's what we like in our guests. Mm-hmm. Bit it's, of terror. It's the only way. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about scary books. But before we get to the books, mm. I'm interested to know how seriously you guys take Halloween. Well, not very. <laughs> Let's. I mean, <laughs> yeah, dead silence. Pardon the pun there. Oh, and there's no pardoning that pun. Um, I'm, you know, it's Halloween. It's not really a tradition that I grew up with. I, I like it. I like parts of it. I don't like the scary bits myself. <laughs> Those are the best bits. No, no, they're not. They're really not. The pumpkin pies are the best bits, and you know, jack o' lanterns are the best bits without the backstory to jack o' lantern because that's scary. So, yeah. uh, so I get the feeling that uh, scary and you don't mix, Justine. Mm-hmm. I see no reason for it. Okay. <laughs> Alex? Well, I'm a bit of a horror nerd, so I think it's Halloween all year round for me. Perfect. Ooh. Every day is terrifying. Every day is candy for <laughs> breakfast and being anxious. <laughs> it also sounds a little bit like my life too. <laughs> Well, before we get started, we want to remind our listeners that you can download Dear Reader episodes at SoundCloud and iTunes by searching for Melbourne Library Service and subscribing. And all the books we talk about on the show today will be listed on our show notes in our Goodreads page, which you can find on the website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au and on the Read page. Okay, let's talk about books. Justine, can you scare us first, please? Oh, I don't know if I really want to, but okay, I'll give it a go. (laughs) We're all here for you. (laughs) Oh, thank you. We might have to hold hands later. Uh, So I don't usually read scary books, uh, but this particular book that I'm going to talk about was recommended by a number of people who said it was really unique, really different, really original. And I went, oh, all right, I'm going to give that a shot. So it's called The Last Days of Jack Sparks, and it's by Jason Arnup. So here's a bit about it. Jack Sparks died while writing this book. To his fans, Jack was a fearless rebel. To his detractors, he was a talentless hack. Either way, his death came as a shock to everyone. This book, compiled from the files found after his death, reveals the chilling details of Jack's final hours. So Jack Sparks is a journalist who's been researching the occult for his new book. He's no stranger to controversy. He'd already triggered a furious Twitter storm by mocking an exorcism he witnessed. And then there was that video, which was 40 seconds of chilling footage that Jack repeatedly claimed was not of his making and yet was posted from his own YouTube account. Nobody knew what happened to Jack in the days that followed his death. But this is an account of his final days. 
This is a book that really creeps up on you in every sense of that word. Jack is incredibly unlikable, as characters go, definitely an untrustworthy narrator. He's opinionated, he's egotistical, he's confrontational, he's generally difficult, but he also appears to know a bit of this about himself, which means that the reader is still drawn to him and and to what happens to him. It's a different kind of book. This one definitely original, like people were telling me. Definitely, I found it really creepy, but it's also really quite funny, uh, sometimes very wry, until suddenly it's not funny, it's eerily quiet, and you don't want to be alone reading it. And they just literally creep up on you, these moments. The main character, Jack Sparks, doesn't believe in the supernatural, at least on the surface, but then we follow along with his story and we discover certain childhood experiences which led him to his current profession of unearthing the supernatural. This book is kind of like an Ouroboros, you know, the snake which eats its own tail, Mm. in that as we go on, we discover that the end is actually the beginning. By which I mean, stick with it through the rather slow start, as all will be made clear. I'm not going to tell you much at all, though, because I don't want to spoil anything. It's clever, it's wickedly funny, it's multi-layered, and it's a story which explores possession, ghosts, demons, the devil, faith, spirituality, and the afterlife, all through the lens of one man's huge ego. Um, I found it pretty darn scary, but then I'm a bit of a wuss, as I've just said, about these kind of books. I liked it, but I am never going to read it again. And that was The Last Days of Jack Sparks by Jason Arnop. So, dear, <laughs> give it a go. <laughs> you guys like being scared, you probably enjoy it. It's probably more on the creepy side, not so much scary side, although there is one particular, I'm going to say, person or character with exclamation like quotation marks around that, um, who is really quite scary uh, towards the end. So I'll let you discover that for yourselves. Alex, what is your first spooktacular book? <laughs> well, my first spooktacular book, I'm not going to do it, I'm sorry. <laughs> do the voice, do the voice. <laughs> oh, maybe if you're lucky, okay. a bit later. Um, so my first book is The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. This strikes me as something of a predictable choice on my end. Um, You will not read a top 10 Halloween reads list in which this book does not feature very prominently. It's a classic, but it is a classic for very good reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, So this book was first published in 1959, so it is a little bit less contemporary than maybe some of the other books that you guys cover. Um, But it has some very modern sensibilities, and I think it really holds up today very well. Um, So for me, this is the quintessential haunted house book. Um, The plot, as such, is fairly straightforward. Uh, This is one of those books that deals with a group of people who go to stay in a house that's rumoured to be haunted in order to conduct some kind of paranormal investigation. And if this sounds like the plot of every horror movie that you've ever seen, it's because this is the book that set the template for those kinds of movies. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, What sets this book apart, though, for me, I don't know if you'd agree, is the characters. Yes. Um, So there's four main characters. There's Dr. Montague, who is the investigator kind of at the helm of the research. There's Luke, who is the heir to Hill House, basically, and he's there sort of as a condition of the lease. And then there's the two women, who are the best. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Their names are Eleanor and Theo. And Eleanor is pretty much the main character in the sense that we really... Um, get to see the events unfold from her point of view. Mm. And her story is very sad. Um, she is basically uh, 32 years old and is has been, for the entirety of her adult life, uh, a carer for her mother. Mm. Um, a carer, but really a domestic servant, right? And she moves into Hill House. Uh, she, she accepts the invitation to Hill House um, after her mother dies. And she really sees that as her first opportunity for 
adventure and for freedom. Yeah. And so, okay, they all move into Hill House and sure enough, strange things begin to happen. Mm. Cue ominous music. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Was that that what you had in mind? That was really scary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The reason I've chosen this book is because um, it was important for me to pick a book that I really think of as being entry-level horror. Yeah. Um, As a horror nerd, I do frequently get asked for recommendations from people who don't read horror. And let's face it, it's fairly maligned as a genre, not without good reason sometimes. (laughs) I mean, most genres are maligned, though. (laughs) This one, big time, (laughs) big time. And this is the book that I recommend for people who don't read horror. Nice. Um, The reason for that is because it is fairly genteel in its... In its scares. Um, there's no gore, there's no violence, there's no blood, there's no gross outs. Um, it really is, it really is genteel in its, in its horror and its capacity to scare. Mm. That's not to say that it's not terrifying because <laughs> it is. <laughs> to be is. honest, I actually think blood and gore make it easier for me. It's, yeah, the, it's the ones without that that are like sort of in the head. Yeah, absolutely. Psychological terror. Yes, I can't do that at all. Well, Natalie, I know that you're a Stephen King fan and you've probably come across this concept that he writes about in his essays where he makes that delineation between terror and horror. Yes. Um, and his quote goes something like, the difference between terror and horror is the difference between awful apprehension and sickening realisation. Exactly. <laughs> and the uh, the Haunting of Hill House is big on terror, but kind of light on horror. Yeah. But it's, it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It absolutely um, is. So my absolute favourite thing about this book is the women. Um, I think it's fair to say that horror is a genre that doesn't treat its women very well. I would um, say that's written <laughs> in stone somewhere. Yeah, pretty much. Um, when they're not sort of part of a body count or there's not some gratuitous shower scene or they're not survivors as a slasher predicated on some weird sexist moral choices they made along the way, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they don't fare well. Yes, um, <laughs> it's very fair to say. <laughs> um, this book, on the other hand, really kind of flips that. I'm actually surprised at how much this book centres the experiences of women, the relationships between women, and also the relationships women have to themselves. It strikes me as something very modern. Like, if I encountered this in even a contemporary story, I would be pleasantly surprised and find it really refreshing. Mm. Um, On that, a fun fact about Shirley Jackson is that in her life, uh, she was a famous novelist in her life and a famous writer of short stories in her lifetime, but what she actually did as a regular income was that she was a columnist for a women's magazine. Um, she was essentially the 1950s equivalent of a mummy blogger. Oh, truly. Um, so I find it really interesting that her stories are essentially all haunted house stories, which are really, when you when you pair it back, they're stories of the monstrous domestic, right? Mm. And I find it really interesting that she's chosen this as a vehicle to explore the relationships between women and the relationships women have to themselves, especially in light of 1950s America. Yeah, she was well and truly ahead of her time, wasn't she? Definitely. Yeah. For me, um, the writing style in this is really pitch perfect. It is almost utilitarian, Mm. but never shallow or flippant, Mm. Um, which makes... So one of the main threads of this story is the the tension between reality and like n- the narrative truth and the characters' truths. So she has this way of talking about these really big, unwieldy, and terrifying concepts in language that tends towards the sparse and utilitarian, mm. which I think really brings the terror closer to me. 
um, one thing I will say about this book is that if you are interested in reading it, I would definitely recommend the audiobook version read by Bernadette Dunn. Um, there's something really satisfying about listening to a ghost story. I think they're actually meant to be heard rather than read. Um, think Campfire Tales and sleepovers and scaring totally. each other. Oh, I love that. Um, totally. It's not a big commitment either. It's only about five hours long. So uh, that's what I did this time around and it was great. Um, so that was The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Fabulous stuff. Thanks so much, Alex. That's a great first pick, I think. Natalie, your spooktacular <laughs> book, please. Well, you know, no surprises for guessing who I'm going to start by talking about. <laughs> no surprises whatsoever. Go for it. No, I think I talked about Stephen King in our very first Dear Reader episode. Have. Yeah. Look, it's a it's a narrative crush, all right? Um I read a book uh, very recently called Doctor Sleep. It is Stephen King's sequel to The Shining, which is one of the best books I've ever read and certainly one of the scariest books I've ever read. The Shining was originally published in 1977 and Doctor Sleep was published in 2013. So while it is a sequel to that story and has the same characters, it doesn't get anywhere near the claustrophobic terror of The Shining. Um <laughs> The Shining remains one of the most psychologically and physically scary books that I have ever read in my life. The Stanley Kubrick film of 1980 changed so much of the book, so much of the book, that the story was lost and I don't know that the film did the story justice. And Stephen King hated it. So the film itself is stylistically beautiful. It's a stunning film um, and it is a scary film. There are real moments of jumpiness. Um, but what it does with you as the viewer is it sits you back and you observe the characters. Whereas the book, Stephen puts you in the mind, in the terrifying minds of these characters, and he leaves you inside there as everything unravels and you're part of that terror. The film, you're sort of an observer. And I think that's one of Stephen King's criticisms of the film. I found the book far more immersive than the film and that made it a lot scarier. And plus the characters are just better written, especially Danny's mum, Wendy. Um, so if you haven't already, read The Shining. Pause, read The Shining, come back. Finished? Good. Okay. Dr. Sleep, the sequel. So the young boy from The Shining, Danny Torrance, is now all grown up and we know him as Dan. His shining, which is a psychic ability to sense things that the rest of us can't sense and which is a bit of mind reading and a bit of premonition, um, this ability of his has had um, exposed him to horrible and dark visions across his entire life. And as he got older, he started to medicate those with alcohol. He found them quite troubling. So at the beginning of this sequel, he is a full-blown alcoholic who's just hit rock bottom and he's starting to figure out how to crawl out of that hole and how to recover. And so that's the first thread of the book is Dan and his new sober future. In a parallel story, a baby girl called Abra is born and she also has the shining. Her shining is so powerful that she has vis visions as an infant. She can play the piano with her mind while she's still in nappies. She, as she continues to grow, she learns of a horrible murder and she's able to reach out to Dan to ask for help. And she's a preschooler at this age. So it's a real, she has the shining in, in a much bigger way than Dan ever did. Um, so she's quite a phenomenal character. And that's the second thread of the book is what's going on with Arbra as she grows up. And then the third thread is about this nomadic tribe of people called the True Knot who travel around America in camper vans. And they look human, they look quite innocuous and harmless, but they're anything but. They live off the steam that children who have the shining will produce when they're being tortured to death. So they kill children. And that's the third thread of the story is the true knot on their travels to find more steam so they can survive. So 
as you can see, these three threads are going to weave themselves really neatly together. You've got the true knot, you've got Arbor with this epic shining who will save the true knot from uh, going out of existence, and then you've got Dan who's sworn to protect Arbor and, and her powers, and an epic showdown ensues. I don't need to tell you anything more about the plot. <laughs> you've got it, right? You've visualised it. You know where we're going. Um, so there's a real lot to like about this book. The least of all is that it's familiar characters and also you're championing Danny because you've seen him as a kid and you know the horrors that he's survived already um, and he's trying to prevent Arbor from the same fate, which is, you know, you're certainly on his side. It's not half as scary as The Shining, I have to say. There were no sudden jumps or shivers down the spine for me, but it is creepy um, and it immersed me back inside the mind of Danny Torrance and his Shining. Um, and, of course, you've got Stephen King's pitching good versus evil and where we sit in those, you know, in the murkiness that sits between these two um, uh, extremes. I totally enjoyed reading it. There's a psychic cat, which made it even oh. more enjoyable for me. Can They're I just speak say? in your language. I know, yeah. right? And the psychic cat is also the cover star of the book. So... They're on the cover. No, Azzy. It's just so lovely. It doesn't sound scary at all. Well, it's, uh, it is, but also not. I mean, it builds on, it has such a, I mean, it's a sequel, right? Mm. And so it springs off the incredibleness of the beginning and they certainly fit together. You could read Dr. Sleep as a standalone, but I would, rec if you tr if you want to get into it, I would read the book of The Shining, which is just so different to the film. It'll give you a completely different experience of that story. And then to go from the book, I mean, you know that, you know, in the film where um, the Jack Nicholson character is typing, all work and no mm, play makes yeah. Jack a double, that's not in the book. That was such an iconic scene as yes, well. Yes, the blood in the elevator, not in the book. There's so much of it that's stylistically beautiful and part of the film that's not part of the book. The book is so different. I really, If you enjoyed the film, I would really recommend the book too. And then, you know, you can read the sequel and we can just hang out and talk about Stephen King. <laughs> that was Dr. Sleep. Justine, what's your second terrifying book for the day? Well, um, funnily enough, it is the son of Stephen King, who is the author I will be talking about today. He goes by the name of Joe Hill, and I actually had no idea he was Stephen King's son when I was uh, picking up a book to read. Again, this was... Well, actually, um, I'm really interested in the latest book that Joe Hill has written, which is called The Fireman, which is on my to-be-read list, and I'm looking forward to that one. It doesn't sound that scary. Um, but when we were talking about spooktacular books to, to choose for today, I thought, oh, well, he's supposed to have a couple. I'll have a little look and, you know, let's, let's see what's in his back catalogue. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I chose crazily to read a book called, now it's pronounced Nosferatu, but it's actually N-O-S-4-A-2. It's a number plate and that's how it is on the cover. Very but it, clever. You, it's very clever. You pronounce it Nosferatu and it's the third novel by Joe Hill. It was published in 2013. It's spine-tingling. Uh, it's a novel of suspense and it focuses on a woman trying to save her son from a vicious supernatural killer who has set his sights on him. Victoria McQueen has a secret gift for finding things. A misplaced bracelet, a missing photograph, answers to unanswerable questions. On her rally tough burner bike, she makes her way to a rickety covered bridge that, within moments, takes her wherever she needs to go, whether it's across Massachusetts or across the country. Mm. Charles Talent Manx has a way with children. Not that way. 
He likes to take them for rides in his 1938 Rolls-Royce Wraith with the Nosferatu vanity plate. With his old car, he can slip right out of the everyday world and onto the hidden roads that transport them to an astonishing and terrifying playground of amusement he calls Christmasland. Then one day, Vic goes looking for trouble and finds Manx. That was a lifetime ago when she was a teenager. Now, as the only kid to ever escape Manx's evil land, she's all grown up and desperate to forget. But Charlie Manx never stopped thinking about Victoria McQueen. He's on the road again and he's picked up a new passenger, her son. So when I first started reading Nosferatu, it was at nighttime, and this book creeped me out so much. <laughs> Within the first couple of chapters, I had to put it down, and I could only read it during the daytime after that. It was just, oh, no. <laughs> Vic McQueen is a fabulous character. She's kick-butt, she's smart, and she's fun. She's someone we can relate to because she isn't 100% perfect. She's made mistakes, and she's trying to redeem herself. Another character I loved was Maggie Lee, who introduces us to the concept of in space, which is how she and Vic find things. And I thought that this was a truly fascinating concept. And I love that Joe Hill came up with it. And it reminds me of what you just were speaking about with Stephen King's Shining. Yeah. I particularly love that with these kind of gifts come the sacrifices to match. And both of these characters, Vic and Maggie, lose a part of themselves when they access this in space. The story's really well paced, there's lots of dialogue and then flashes of action. The bad guys are pretty bad. Manx is, of course, the big bad, although it would have been good to discover a little bit more about how and why he came to be this way. We get a little bit on that, but I would have liked a bit more. And his sidekick, Bing Partridge, the gas man, is pretty awful too, and I didn't need any more of him. That was enough. (laughs) Um, I actually, weirdly enough, I enjoyed this book. I don't normally like being creeped out or scared, but I actually even enjoyed the creepy uh, creepy bits, although I did read them rather quickly. Quickly. Um, and I loved the ending. It made sense. It wasn't what I expected, but it was closer to what I hoped the ending would be. Um, also, I definitely recommend reading the author's comments on the typeface. They are worth reading. Mm. Hint, hint. Are they scary? Well, I'm not telling you. Say no more. (laughs) This book definitely scared me. Christmas will never be the same again. Uh, (laughs) It really took Christmas to a a very interesting place. It's about the loss of innocence and and, uh, the bad guys actually trying to keep children innocent. But children, when they're innocent, that actually can mean that they don't know right from wrong. And so the things that they do to people are pretty horrifying. Mm. And to think of children doing that is just, oh, that creeps me out. Um, (laughs) I'm really looking forward to reading more by Joe Hill. Like I said, his latest book, The Fireman, is already on my to-be-read pile. So that's Nosferatu by Joe Hill. Alex, your second spooktacular book, please. (laughs) Now it's a choir. (laughs) Choirs can be scary. They can be. They can be very scary. All right. Okay, so uh, my second book is House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. This book. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so uh, the first thing that you need to know about this book is that it is unconventional. Some might say experimental in form. Um, If you were just to pick up the book and flip through the pages, you would notice that it is really densely annotated. It's got footnotes. The typeface changes around. There's some pages where you have to turn the book sideways and upside down just to read it. Yeah, that kind of nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) The second thing that you need to know about this book is that it has what I would call a nested narrative structure. So it's a story within a story within a story. It's essentially three interlocking stories. And as such, even trying to write a plot synopsis was more complicated than it should have been. But here goes. 
So the plot starts with an introduction, and the introduction is from the point of view of a guy named Johnny Truant. And Johnny Truant strikes me as a sort of a quintessentially 90s character. He's a he's an apprentice tattoo artist in, I think it's LA. Um, he sort of spends a lot of time between bars and beds that aren't his own, and he's a teller of tall tales and a bit listless and a bit unmoored in his life. Um, one day he moves into an apartment building that belonged to a man named Zampano who has just died. And in that apartment building, Johnny discovers that Zampano was a prolific writer. He finds reams and reams of scrawl on envelopes, on napkins, even on the backs of postage stamps. And he becomes obsessed with piecing the writing together. And it turns out that this writing forms a cohesive manuscript. That's what the introduction sets up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Stay with me. <laughs> page two. What happens page two. on page two? <laughs> Buckle up. That's what the introduction sets up. Um, the rest of the book, the meat is essentially the manuscript itself. But Johnny Truant's um, reflections on the text and responses to the text, as well as his journalistic kind of um, uh, autobiographical interjections, are told through a series of really invasive footnotes. So mm. what you are reading is this manuscript and Johnny's story sort of as parallel texts that literally compete for space on the page. Okay, are you with me so far? Yes, I'm yeah. so there. <laughs> okay. I'm totally there. Okay, because the real mystery is actually in the manuscript. The manuscript it turns out to be um, an academic dissertation about a documentary film that may or may not exist. The documentary film follows the guy, a guy named Will Navidson, who moves his family into a house to discover that something about the house makes it expand and contract on the inside Corridors just mysteriously appear, doors appear, walls shift by inches in the night. And the documentary film that may or may not exist is Will trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. Right. Essentially, in summary, it's a book about a book about a film about a house. (laughs) (laughs) Of course it is. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Simple, right? Yeah, simple. Okay. (laughs) We're with you. All right, you with me? Yes. Okay, so the reason I chose this book is because it's, it sounds like nonsense, <laughs> um, but it's great. I realise this form is going to be really polarising. And to be honest, confession time, I first read this book in my first year of university when I think your mind is probably at its most fertile for um, ridiculous postmodern metafiction. Um, if I were to pick up this book now, I'd probably be like, nope, and put it right back down. I'm really glad that I read this book when I did because there is a story here so compelling and so terrifying that I am still thinking about it 10 years later. Wow. More than 10 years later. <laughs> you don't have to disclose how many <laughs> years. I don't want to lie. It might, be, it might be too scary to talk too, about. It's too scary to years. talk about. Aging's scary. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was telling you, Justine, as well, that I actually, even in a reread, I was I had nightmares. Oh, <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to read that I one. I cannot wait so to read this book. It's, I can't it's wait. pretty fantastic. So I would recommend this book to anyone who really likes their fiction to keep its secrets close. Mm. This found manuscript format really, really works for me. Um, I think it makes the reader deeply complicit in what's going on in a way that really, really brings the horror closer. Um, This is essentially a book about uncovering hidden knowledge. The book literally starts with the line, this is not for you. Mm. And... By the time you actually realise that, you're too complicit in it to turn back, and it is 
terrifying. <laughs> oh, Justine. <laughs> you just whimpered, I think. <laughs> I can't wait to read this. I'm thoroughly excited. I love the sound of the format, but I'm terrified by the thought of what's in it. <laughs> yeah, this is not for you. <laughs> Now I have to read it. But readers, it's for you. I feel like people are going to read it and then hate me. No. no. <laughs> um, so that's uh, House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. Well. Uh, amazing. <laughs> Enough said about that one, I think. <laughs> Natalie. Yes. We need to hear your last, I'm going to do it again, spooktacular book. I, I went back for this. I went way back. I went. Time like, machine? Well, I'm thinking year seven. Ooh. I'm thinking the mid to late 80s. I'm thinking one of the first scary books that I read. So this book is for teenagers, so you can, you can all both relax. <laughs> and I'm sure you've read it. I Know What You Did Last Summer by Lois Duncan. I didn't know this was a book. Oh, I saw the movie. I saw the movie in, in the cinema. I remember sneaking in to see this movie in the cinema. And it was, it's, this is interesting for me because this is such a quintessentially 90s movie for me. Mm. Yes. And I only ever saw the movie too, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I know, Bad Librarians. Okay, sit, d- <laughs> sit down and listen now. I have something to tell you. But does the book have Freddie Prince Jr. in it? Exactly. Oh. Good mm. question. Dear goodness. <laughs> I'm going to pretend they're not here, pretend they're not here, pretend they're not here. <laughs> Just talk, Natalie. Tell everyone about this book that you loved when you were a child. Um, it was originally published in 1973. I would have read that version in the 80s. It was updated slash modernised in 2010, and that's the edition that I read this week. Um, there are now references to mobile phones and digital cameras and when I was rereading this book I thought hang on a second how did I miss this <laughs> what was she like predictive like what happened and the uh, edition that I was reading at the back has a little Q&A with the author and she talks about which parts she modernized and why and she changed the Vietnam War to the Iraq War so she's basically just putting it in a contemporary setting, setting. but it's still written for teenagers so you know I had to keep that in mind because I'm uh, terrifyingly not a teenager anymore um <laughs> It was probably one of the first kind of thriller whodunit books that I'd read before, quite suspenseful. It was much scarier than the Trixie Belden mysteries that I had been reading until that time. Um, And it led nicely into Christopher Pike, who Mm. I devoured books by Christopher Pike, my goodness. Anyway, I know what you did last summer. In the book, a 10-year-old boy is killed when he is run over by a car that's driven by a teenager and there's four teenagers in the car. Um, The teenagers and the car do not stop to help the boy. They make a pact never to speak of it again and they bury it. And nobody knows who hit this boy. Nine months after the accident, a mysterious note arrives with one of the teenagers who are in the car that reads, I know what you did last summer. And uh, the gang are now kind of uh, having to confront what they did and to avoid the revenge that is slowly heading their way. Some other kind of spooky things happen to each of the other occupants of the car as it uh, starts to become obvious that someone actually does know what they did. Um, Speaking of the 90s, uh, it was made into a slasher film. Um, Was it ever? which, which was a very popular genre of our youth. Um, but the film bears very little resemblance to the book other than a basic uh, hit and run. Yeah, I was un- going to say, undis- I, I don't closed. remember the no. victim being a child. No, mm. exactly. So in the film, you've got blood, gore, sex. None of that is in the book. The book is written for teenagers. Um, there's also a few brutal murders in the film, not in the book at all. Changes the whole vibe of the thing. Wow. So the book mm, is different. more of a stalker. And the film is more of a serial killer. You've got a very different threat going on in those two uh, pieces of work. 
Lois Duncan's books always sort of have bad things happening in them. They're quite suspenseful. Um, you've got unwanted pregnancies, abusive fathers, emotionally troubled teens, deaths of parents, deaths of children. So she's sort of, I guess, a Judy Bloom tackling those issues, but instead of doing it in a kind of family way, she's doing it in a suspenseful thriller way. So they're not jump-out-of-your-seat terrifying kind of books, but there is suspense and generally a mystery for the reader to solve, which is one of the greatest things about reading these books is that you're taken along for the ride, all the clues are in front of you. Can you you figure it out before you get to the end. Entirely appropriate for the age group that she's writing for. That's the end of my review, but I'm going to tell you something troubling and mm-hmm. scary, and this is how we're ending, right? <laughs> this okay. Is, keep this one in mind. So Lois Duncan, the author, her daughter was killed in 1989. Her daughter was shot twice in the head while she was driving her car, and the murder remains unsolved. So Ooh. Lois Duncan died in June of 2016, this year, never knowing what happened That's to her horrible. daughter. Isn't that horrible? Um, I get shudders just thinking about what she would have experienced. I came here to be scared, not yeah. depressed. Well, <laughs> it's both, don't you think? Um, Lois wrote a book in 1992 about the case, if you're interested in true crime as part of, I guess, the Halloween vibe. Um, the book's called Who Killed My Daughter? And Lois investigated her, her family, the police. They spent more than 20 years investigating what happened to her daughter and she never quite recovered. And her writing altered drastically because she felt like she could no longer write about a vulnerable girl yeah, I bet. Um, who experiences violence or horror or even just a bit of a thriller. She really changed a lot of what she wrote. And I think that's part of the reason why the film who came that came out after her daughter died was such a, like a horrible shock to her because she was not involved in the production of the film at all. So she had no idea it was this kind of raunchy teenage mm. kind of slasher murder film. And so she... You know, the story goes that she bought her popcorn and bought her ticket and went to see this film oh, above the no, book poor thing. and was just horrified from the experience, not because she was scared but because it was so such a violent retelling of what was essentially a little bit of a creepy, suspenseful story for, you know, 14-year-olds had mm. kind of become this much bigger thing. But, you know, 90s horror films... The Craft, I love Scream, the craft. Uh-huh. I love the, Scream. All the Jamie Lee Curtis Halloween remakes was like mm-hmm. Halloween 15. Did you hear The Craft then? is getting remade? Oh, no, don't remake it. Please don't do that. <laughs> no, don't do it. Don't do that. The 90s remain in the 90s. But speaking of what I'll be doing on Halloween, <laughs> it'll be like 90s slasher films. I don't know. What are you yeah. guys going to do on Halloween? I think that sounds like a good idea. Mm-hmm. What is it? Why can I watch... 90s slasher films. And actually, hearing you talk about teenage fiction, I remember loving Stephen King, loving horror when I was a kid growing up. I have these memories of reading like the short story compilations and they're all horror and they're all pretty scary. And I still have this memory of one which is like these, you know, aircraft and it's got killer bees and anyway let's not go there like a twilight zone kind of maybe, thing maybe yeah but anyway it still freaks me out to even think too much about it <laughs> but as i've gotten older i've gotten less comfortable and less capable of dealing with the scary stuff i don't know maybe, maybe it feels more real maybe maybe when we're younger it feels like this is an absurd unreality and the older you get the more you learn about how society can be quite violent and how some of this is not absurd. So those are the movies that you find the scariest, the ones that are not necessarily No, I find them hilarious, <laughs> actually, to be fair. Yeah, like, I was going to say, 90s slasher films funny. are funny. I mean, like, it's murder. Like, it's actually a horrible yeah, yeah. situation. It's not something to 
gain entertainment from. But those films remind me of a time and a place in my life and I also know where all the twists and turns are so they're quite yeah. fun to rewatch. Um, but stuff that's actually truly terrifying to me today, spiders. Oh, spiders. Clowns. Top of my list. Really? Clowns? Clowns are lovely. Oh, Alex has a clown mask. <laughs> <laughs> I, I brought a costume. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm glad that you brought it into the recording, but I cannot look at you with that mask on. That's actually quite scary. Clowns are scary. They are scary. Oh, they're I don't not think, scary. I don't think they've been not scary. I don't think clowns have existed in any other context for some time now. I would agree with that. I disagree, but that's okay. (laughs) Have you seen my mask? I have seen your mask, but that's not a clown to me. Oh, let's move on, shall we? Um, Stranger Things, the TV show, have you both seen that? Yeah, I didn't actually find it that scary. The suspense was ramped up. Did you Have you seen it? I haven't Okay. It's such a throwback to the kind of... The Stephen King vibe. He loved it. He tweeted about it. I was you like, are such a fan girl. You Steve- Ooh, hey. <laughs> I just respect, you know, a masterful, skillful writer. You do. I respect many masterful, you do. skillful writers. <laughs> slash Stephen King. So tweeting Stephen King right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Stephen. We talked all about you. You're great. <laughs> Any other final things that are terrifying? Like what else scares you? Commitment. on that note justine well that is our show alex thank you so much for joining us today we've had a blast oh it's been terrifying though it's 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 been a terrifying blast yes (laughs) a terrifying blast um you can read our show notes including a list of the books we discussed on our goodreads page which you can find on our website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au and on the read page we would also love you to tell us what spooky things you've been reading. Tweet us at Melb Library. That's at M-E-L-B-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y with the hashtag Dear Reader or join the conversation on Goodreads. Don't forget you can download episodes of Dear Reader at SoundCloud or iTunes or you can subscribe to us as well and we'll be delivered directly to your device. We will. The groovy music on our program is not scary in the slightest and it is by Ben Mason. Check out more of his music at www.benmason.com.au and until next time, dear reader, thanks for listening. (laughs) You didn't know I was going to do that. (laughs) The scariest thing about the whole show.